This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week, well, almost, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're on a very spooky wing of our forced march, where we're finally reading Sylvia Federici's 1998 Marxist feminist classic, Caliban and the Witch. Specifically, the chapter The Great Witch Hunt in Europe. Not one step back, my little pretties. Yeah, so we're talking uh, we're talking Federici from uh, Caliban and the Witch, The Great Witch Hunt. Uh, maybe just start just talking a little bit about Federici. Mm-hmm. So Federici is one of the more famous like Marxist feminists from like mm-hmm. the last half century. Maybe the uh, thing that she was involved with was the Wages for Housework campaign. Like a big focus of her is how like capitalism doesn't really value like the domestic economy and like the reproduction of the working class just gets pushed off onto women essentially. And the mm-hmm. idea is you'd put like money on it basically and turn it into a locus of like economic struggle. The idea of like wages for housework, basically, is my understanding of it. Payment for reproductive labor, essentially. Getting it recognized by the wage form in a way that would supposedly break the economy. <laughs> like, if you actually tried to remunerate all the unpaid reproductive labor that people did, it would be something similar. Although, how similar is sort of the crux of the theoretical question to trying to pay all the money to a worker that is exploited like in regular wage labor. Well, I know one thing that they emphasize is that the classic mid 20th century like family wage enough to basically support, you know, a wife and who doesn't work and then kids as well. In that is are like the cost of reproduction basically, but it's given to the man to sort of control and give him like authority within this like nuclear family political social unit, right? One thing they emphasize is sort of like the decomposition of the family, like an early industrialization, where it was just paying people less than the amount needed to just reproduce themselves, let alone other people. Mm-hmm. That decomposed the family, and then as labor grew in strength, like as part of the way to sort of you know create the labor aristocracy or whatever was to give men a wife, right? Yes, and I think she sees this more as like a process of capital that the workers' movement like is taking part in, but. I don't know. I feel like she sees that as a broader thing, because that is an undertone in Caliban and the Witch, that the witches are killed in a big old genocide, her word, in order to create submissive wives, like scare women into, you know, breaking off and becoming wives. I don't think she would locate it as much in the labor movement, although she probably should, <laughs> because um, one of the historical inaccuracies in this book is, you know, a lot of the countries she's talking about, you know, women didn't get married until later. And it's not because they were too busy doing reproductive labor, but they were like out working, like in factories and shit, (laughs) like doing classically productive labor in addition to whatever reproductive labor. So I don't know. Before we jam the narrative too much, I guess. Yeah, maybe we should say the full title of the book is Caliban and the Witch, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation. And a lot of what this is focused on is primitive accumulation. And what she basically argues is that within 
medieval peasant society, there were a lot of ways in which women were instrumental in the community and that they had a lot of power through these folk practices that had been passed down generationally through history, right? And that basically the witch hunt was a way to demonize the most powerful women in the community to decompose the peasant class and weaken it, thus making it more easily subject to primitive accumulation. Yeah, and we didn't really read most of the parts of the book that had to do with colonization, but it's sort of a taking from the commons of the external other, colonized people, and then, you know, the internal other, which is, like, women. And she really makes the comparison very bluntly in a lot of places that it's pretty much the same way that colonization is happening to peoples outside of Europe that women's bodies are being subject to rationalization and uh, capital. It seems to be drawing heavily from Foucault in terms of like how she sees enlightenment rationality in this situation. Rather than seeing it as a strictly progressive force that liberates women from superstition, she sees witch trials in particular as something that's instrumentalized by enlightenment rationality. She points to the fact that most of these witch trials happen relatively late, later than the Middle Ages. So it's not simply just Dark Age superstition driving these people. It's more of an enlightenment rationality that's supposedly driving them. And she points to specifically a number of philosophers of the time period that she's talking about, which is like late Renaissance where it's like Thomas Hobbes, even though he doesn't necessarily believe in the superstitious element, approves of it as a social mechanism of disciplining women. Does she make that claim, though? Because the impression that I got was that she was putting down by like citing these various like Enlightenment figures as being either supportive or agnostic towards the witch hunts, was more that the motivation for it wasn't necessarily religious fervor of like the Dark Ages or whatever. And that there was something else at work here that was motivating this. Right, but... Does she claim it's a pure, like, product of enlightenment rationality? I don't think you could... I mean, even timeline-wise, I don't think you could really make that claim. The precise claim that she's making is that this is essentially the first, like, pang of a rational rationalism. The kind of thing that the Frankfurt School is analyzing in fascism, where the Frankfurt School takes anti-Semitism and eventually the Holocaust as the form of rationalistic irrationalism. I really was struck by how much she's trying to turn the witch trials into the Holocaust, like, and trying to give it that character as the first, you know, mass democide panic or something mm-hmm. that's whipped up or encouraged by the mass media. Right, right. There's even a part that's pretty explicit saying that sometimes you have to take a step back in order to take a step forward or something like that. Or basically, you know, this seemingly irrational and cruel thing in terms of the witch trials has like an instrumental rationality to it. It had to be done in this process of primitive accumulation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like stamping out magic for her and, and for this sort of way of looking at things was a way of dissecting the world, disenchanting it, 
making it inert and therefore making it controllable. I mean, yeah, that's the thing that seems a little more like woo woo to me or whatever. Um, (laughs) But because she also kind of frames it in a way of this new way of seeing in the world was like in conflict with this other way and that they viewed this as so abhorrent and not just as like a nuisance or whatever, precisely because they have like this new sensibilities in terms of what the world should be and what people's work ethic and shit should be. But she kind of overstates her case, right? There's like a lot of that in here where you could read this and come away with the sounds that like, you know, life for women was great under feudalism. And, you know, it was really just capitalism that invented patriarchy. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's why I draw it back to like Foucault, the influence of Foucault. Right. It's like when you read uh, Discipline and Punish, you get the sense that, hey, you know, maybe these sort of like public spectacle executions are weirdly more humane than the kind of like control society powered relations that come about in the 20th century due to like enlightenment rationality and sort of liberal humanism yeah no i mean that vibe is all over this and and even though foucault is mentioned as a methodological source but also kind of criticized for being genderless genderless yeah yeah a genderless history of sexuality but yeah like that edge to foucault is like an underlying thing that is never explicitly stated maybe not really what is meant but it's that thing about critical theory that gets more and more like this almost only is makes sense saying we should go back that all this was a mistake if you really want to trace it back even further you can trace it back through Nietzschean sort of value like classical Greek tradition you know people understand pain as a fundamental part of their lives and cruelty as a fundamental part of their lives. And, you know, it's what makes them alive. You know, their ability to feel cruelty and, and having a morality that goes beyond a utilitarian good or even sort of a secularized Christian morality, I guess. You know, it's a romanticization yeah. of the past that fundamentally both acknowledge that there's no going back to and that's not the point of why they're counterposing a past tradition against declining modernity although i don't think foucault would phrase it as declining modernity as much as you can call nietzsche a critical theorist and that sort of thing and oh totally foucault called himself like a left nichean and the way that foucault uses history is so inspired by Nietzsche. Nietzsche has a pamphlet called The Use of History for Life or something. And um, it's very much like, listen, we get to use history as we see fit. (laughs) Like, to help us tell new stories. So, I mean, that's really here. That's really present in Federici's work. And you really could read it like, man, if it just wasn't for capitalism, we would have had all this awesome freedom and feudalism. Mm -hmm. Like, Okay, this is published in 1998. Like, you know, I don't want to, like, oversell how free women are because Federici's ultimate point is well made that capitalism involves its own form of patriarchy. That while they don't like to stress that it comes from before, what they like to stress is that exploitation as such is happening within the domestic sphere, within unpaid reproductive labor. There's exploitation there. 
Now, she sometimes muddies the waters by saying it produces value, but we just ignore that because, you know, what she's trying to say is, is really good if we just ignore the, that part. <laughs> that there's, there's, like, exploitation and that this is a part of a class process. I don't know. I think it's harder to maintain a strict reproductive sex class analysis, like, before and after the household with the housewife and that sort of thing. This version of social reproduction theory that's incorporating this sex class analysis seems to crystallize, especially once that social compact has fallen apart. That's just an interesting tension there. But also, like I was saying before, in Central Europe, like a lot of where this book is taking place, women weren't just confined to reproductive labor. That's a sort of graft onto the past. And so that's a tension with when the book is published, which is when there has been a a new kind of normal with regards to women's oppression, which I have to say, I think also coincides with basically a huge uptick in women's freedom in like modern history, probably the history of the world. And that's just a weird thing that this book sits up against because it's trying to sort of make the claim that, I don't know, this is the biggest crucifixion ever. Mm. Um, and that we're part of this struggle. You know, us weird witches, us right now, in the year, you know, 1998. Like, I, and that's not explicitly stated. It's just something that I was thinking about throughout the book. What she literally claims is, and it's read here, the witch hunt was one of the most important events in the development of capitalist society and the formation of the modern proletariat. For the unleashing of a campaign of terror against women, unmatched by any other persecution, weakened the resistance of the European peasantry to the assault launched against them by the gentry and the state, at a time when the peasant community was already disintegrating under the combined impact of land privatization, increased taxation, and the extension of state control over every aspect of social life. The witch hunt deepened the divisions between men and women, teaching men to fear the power of women. Destroyed a universe of practices, beliefs, and social subjects whose existence was incompatible with the capitalist work discipline, thus redefining the main elements of social reproduction. In this sense, like the contemporary attack on popular culture and the great confinement of paupers and vagabonds in workhouses and correction houses, the witch hunt was an essential aspect of primitive accumulation and the transition to capitalism. She kind of brings up, you know, the old Wiccan anthropology theory that, like, there was a maternity cult that like all European pagan religions come from one central maternity nature cult. And this was suppressed by the Christian church through witch hunts, all that sort of thing. She brings it up. She dismisses it, but she doesn't really dismiss it on the grounds of being historically inaccurate. She just dismisses it as not a full critique of like capitalism, I think. Which is kind of interesting because, like, I'm pretty sure it was debunked well, well around the time that she brings it up. So, her not bringing it up as historically inaccurate kind of strikes me as weird. Just not a really full critique of, you know, the process of primitive accumulation that supposedly happened with witches, the witch genocide. So that's that's kind of interesting. There's an interesting tension between like sort of Marxist feminism 
and radical feminism, the excesses mm-hmm. of radical feminism and the excesses of Marxist feminism. And I always sort of noticed that kind of overlap a bit. When you look at like the scum manifesto, for example, like the ultimate yeah. goal of that is like female supremacist communism, moneyless society. Yeah. Full automation, ending the money system and the abolition of the male sex. Yeah. Even uh, with dialectic of sex, although mm-hmm. Firestone is critically reading angles on the family, she's still incorporating Marxism into her feminist theory. And from what I can remember, she was also basically a communist. So, yeah, it's hard to read the book elsewise. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, you have this overlap between radical feminism and Marxist feminism, especially with the sex class analysis of patriarchy is shared by Marxist feminists and radical feminists. It's interesting to see because the excesses also come out in this situation with her specifically getting into woo-woo kind of history (laughs) of women and not being like as concerned with the real historical facts about, let's say, the maternity cult theory as she is about like describing this supposed witch genocide and also with the sort of naturalistic magical worldview versus scientific masculine rationality also leans into the excesses of radical feminism seeing women as still a class as opposed to just like you know maybe a class in primitive communism at most like is unusual for Marxist feminists, and that's what makes this work so interesting, and that's what makes Federici and, you know, other, what you might call social reproduction theorists so interesting, is their attempt to say that what's left of patriarchy, the way it's configured, is part of capitalism, and that you can't really talk about the long-term structures of, you know, categorical masculine domination without talking about the overall class structure. That's, I think, a genuine advance in the multi-systems, intersectional versus, I don't know. Intersectionality is not really radical feminism, though. No, it's not. And actually, it has more to do with Marxist approaches that we're treating women's oppression as something other than class. Right. But it was between those proto-intersectionalists, you might call them like dual systems, which some people won't be happy with me collapsing those things, but there I go. And also like people that were just class-first Marxists that just didn't really think that class with regards to women made sense, even and a lot of them in, in primitive communism. It was just disturbing to think that there was a class in primitive communism to them. And that's where Firestone really gets her theoretical legs, is being like, uh, uh, dude, (laughs) this looks a lot like a class, doesn't it? It's a really difficult question for anyone to kind of sink their teeth into, is that how is this, like, emergent from a labor division? And, yeah, Federici is like, oh, you know, this doesn't just come from feudalism, you know. But I think a good radical feminist critique is, right, it doesn't just come from feudalism, it comes from the dawn of fucking man. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so, one thing I'd be curious to know is, like, what Federici would make of, say, like, the 1980s, like, satanic panic in the United States, right? 
Um, oh, I don't, that would be such a cool lens for this. No, I mean I'm serious because it's like <laughs> I feel like these things do kind of like take on a, a like a dynamic all their own. It's also true, I think, in like three different places: Russia, I think Iceland, and Estonia. It was like mostly men who were killed in like the wish trials. Yeah. Huh. So, and like the satanic panic thing wasn't really focused on women specifically, but it was a similar, this kind of like fear of like witchcraft and like these secret night orgies that were going on where there's child sacrifice. The same kind of dynamics took place there, but what was the impetus for that? Like, what would the underlying like instrumental reason class content be of like that particular manifestation of it, you know? Bolstering the family against uh, the corruption of little religious like movements or sects or something. You bolster the family and traditional religion against the sort of like emergent kind of ways people are socializing at the time. That kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. It was also like a period of like heavy deindustrialization and yeah, like the general kind of like disintegrate. It's also the period of like crack, the rise of like the really nasty drug culture. So that probably had something to do with it. But I don't think you could describe that as being like a form of like primitive accumulation. It, it might be coinciding with like the lumpenization of sectors of the working class, but there was no genocide of Satanists, you know. Right. <laughs> or, although people did go to jail and stuff that was 100% made up. Yeah. Like that did happen. Yeah. I remember uh, with the satanic panic thing, this might be tangential, but it actually started as a campaign by fundamentalist Christians against the Mormon church, from what I remember. <laughs> like, wow. That's funny. Phenomenal. Yeah. From other scholarship on the witch hunts, as much as Federici does talk about Satan, it seems like a lot of the actual like documents are more about Satan than they are about witches. So-and-so is in league with the devil, you know? Right. And Federici does a lot of talking about seduction by the devil and that sort of thing. The witch as the, you know, sexual servant of the devil. And actually just a lot of interesting, like, cultural commentary. That's the thing about this sort of Foucauldian, like, strand of theory. It kind of makes sense that she wouldn't call someone on bad history. Because for these people, it's kind of like history is just some texts to play with yes yeah that's exactly correct and that's why this is bong rip shit you know oh yeah like this is writing a theory on history the same way you would write like theory on like i don't know punk rock or like post-impressionism or something you know what i mean it's not the most rigorous historical scholarship Oddly enough, the methodology kind of reminds me of the way Hollebeck like writes about the Satanist movement in uh, atomization because he briefly brings it up ever so briefly in like one chapter where like one of the characters reads a book about Satanism that accuses Mick Jagger of murdering a bandmate <laughs> and being a part of like a secret Satanist cult. And like all these Hollywood people are just like fundamentally pushing this sort of like sexual deviousness and hedonism upon the world through Satanism. But in the book, it was treated as completely rational. It was oddly rational, even though it's like, you know, Hollebeck can't honestly believe this, you know? This is kind of, like, flatly <laughs> absurd. But, you know, it fits into, like, the narrative that he has about, you know, hedonism as being a capitalist tool that, like, 
dehumanizes people in a fundamental market invasion of human sexual relations. So, yeah, it's basically using history loosely to put a critique at capitalist liberalism, although it's coming from a reactionary direction. Yeah, that's interesting. There's also just the link between abortion and child murder and Satan and witches. It sounds like Satan, even without the figure of the witch, is thought of as being behind abortion or behind all this unproductive, hedonistic sexual activity. So sort of creates classes of people that aren't trying to raise new generations. A big part of this argument is the idea that it's the emerging state at the time becoming an agent of population control and I guess what would eventually be nationalism. But I feel like the time frame that she's talking about is centuries before this happens as like more conscious policy. But that would go hand in hand with the kind of functionalism that you get in a lot of social reproduction theory. And not necessarily uncomfortable with functional explanation that, you know, something happens in order to serve its role in this broader system. So, you know, the witch hunts are part of a functional, like, getting women in line for capitalism or something. I, you could make arguments like that, but those arguments are only as plausible as you can make each step in the argument. And it really seems difficult to pin this on capitalism, qua capitalism, and more... Like, when she makes mention of, like, the bourgeoisie, and she's talking about, like, the 1600s, like, what are we talking about? Yeah, there. yeah. Um, well, no, yeah, the argument is that this effect that it had on the, like, social composition of the peasant class was useful for the development of capitalism. But it doesn't seem to be tied to any particular political economic dynamic in a direct way, right? The most she can argue is that this was convenient for the development of capitalism, not that it was driven by the development of capitalism. Yeah, I didn't really like understand much the utility of it or the rationality of it, the direct rationality of it. Like with primitive accumulation in most forms in the new world, there's the clear monetary incentive for it, you know. Columbus doesn't just kill like all the indigenous people that he encounters on whatever Caribbean island he landed on or whatever. Because, you know, he just felt like it, or it was just solely because of religious motives. He wanted gold. He wanted gold, and he wanted to bring it back to the New World. There's a clear economic motive for settlers in the New World. You know, they want land. Land gives them economic independence, and these indigenous people stand in the way. For witches, murdering witches... What clear economic motive there is for murdering witches is beyond me. What exactly do they gain? The closest that she gets to is like murdering beggars that are kind of annoying and like steal stuff. But wouldn't that involve killing a lot of men too? Well, because there should be a lot of male beggars too. But there were milieus where it was mostly men though. My point in saying that is broadly, yeah, it's against women, but like. It's possible for the dynamics to function the same way where it's not mostly women. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I think she makes a good case that the witch hunt is part of like a feudal class struggle. And she does refer to the witches and that sort of thing as an anti-feudal revolt. 
And I think that Federici herself probably is not taking that romantic angle. Although I'm trying to be charitable there because there's other parts of other works that she does that does seem to lean in that direction. I've read this a long time ago. I think I read this in like 2011, like during my sort of Occupy days, but I haven't revisited it much since. I'm trying to remember what her broader theory of the transition to capitalism was and how it happened. Like, does she subscribe to like the Brenner thesis? How does she think it came about? You know, other than there was like a bunch of witches and then (laughs) (laughs) the overarching argument of the book is that primitive accumulation is something that's continuously a part of capitalism. It wasn't just part of starting off capitalism. Right. So she ties like primitive accumulation into the way that women are exploited under capitalism. Yeah. Right. That seems a little shaky to me. In the introduction, she says that like the book was inspired. I guess she was teaching in Nigeria, and she kind of observed like the hyper focused form of like IMF restructuring, like in Nigeria, and how that was like a form of like pretty much direct like primitive accumulation, where the IMF is even like mandating the like population levels in Nigeria need to change and like crazy shit like that. But that seems like a case where you actually do have like. 100% actually conscious, like, instrumental policies coming from, like, a very specific institution designed to advance the interests of the global capitalist class in this locality, right? So you can clearly make the case of, like, this is consciously done to lay the groundwork for capital accumulation. But I feel like it's harder to make that case when you're talking about 300 years of late medieval Europe. Also, like, I get a underlying feeling that she sort of, like, created this overarching narrative that there was a class of women, they were witches, they were spiritual in a sense that they had more of a direct tie to nature that was magical, it was not based around enlightenment reason, and they acted as sort of a resistance to the development of capitalism fundamentally and that's why they were needed to be eliminated entirely and she isn't the only one to say this it is true that oftentimes it was kind of the women who like stepped out of line or who were you know weren't afraid to kind of like vocally assert their interest in the community that they were tended to be the first people to get put up on the stake mm-hmm. like that is true i didn't quite get the vibe that there was like the secret class but She's basically saying like there's this whole universe of like social practices that were eliminated because they were like passed down just from woman to woman, you know. Right. That part actually it doesn't sound that implausible to me. But it's funny, it's tied up with what she was saying about medicine and the beginnings of uh scientific medicine, modern medicine. Yeah. <laughs> there's definitely some like woo stuff there. And Yeah. Washing your hands. That's the patriarchy. <laughs> Sorry. No, but like I don't know. It's a, it's a question that comes up when you're dealing with something like medicine. You have to like simultaneously take seriously that there's compounds and techniques that are systematically ignored in Western medicine that don't get their due. And right. recently there's been some you know, evidence-based stuff that can you know, prove that these things are effective. But then you know, there's cancer. You know, what do you do about cancer? You know, like, <laughs> well, yeah, there's acupuncture, which I guess can have like therapeutic properties. And then there's dim Mac, which teaches that if you hit the right pressure points, you can kill somebody instantly. <laughs> you know, tiger's blood will give you like good erections or whatever, like just shit that was invented out of whole cloth out of nowhere. Yeah. So that was basically the historical placebos. But like 
there is something to be said where peasant women probably did lose like some social ground when their roles they performed in society were displaced. But like I think she maybe undersells like the progressive character of this process because like it's like with uh, automation, right? You throw a bunch of people off a of weaving, but you make something that's ultimately more efficient. But just if it were organized correctly, it could be to the benefit of everybody. Like Western medicine, I'm sure it was actually at the time a definite loss for women. But like the idea of having like science-based medicine that's institutional and you compare all the findings all over the world to develop like consistent procedures that can be tested and verified. Like, that's definite improvement. Right, and there's definitely an exchange for autonomy. You know, yeah, you're not like the herb woman with the traditional techniques that can just practice on the fringes of society. Although, I'll tell you what, like, capitalism has certainly, like, brought that back. Then you compare that to, yes, modern medicine requires you to give up some bodily autonomy. Yes, that's problematic from a feminist perspective. Clearly, medicine has a problem with this, a systematic problem with women's bodies. But as part of giving up some of this autonomy, then you get the potential for mass distribution of birth control and hormone treatments. And in some places, completely paid for by the state. But at the same time, this is coming again from Foucault, but she sees the development of medicine as a form of control. Even now, looking back on it, like when there's sort of a medicalized view of the witch hunts as being, oh, there were just these delusional women that thought they made deals for same because they had schizophrenia or whatever. And that's why these witch hunts happen. They just happen to scare the locals too much with that. She sees this as a denial of patriarchal social relations of the primitive accumulation genocide that went on happening from a fundamentally medical standpoint you know these demonologists that were persecuting the witches were basically you know the equivalent of medicine men they were understanding demons like diseases and that sort of thing it was supposed to be a rational science as much as it can be a rational science or whatever Yeah, it's like a balance, because I don't want to, like, dismiss that there's probably some important medical knowledge that was lost by just, like, paving over these old traditions. There probably is. But, like, I don't think that's incompatible with anything we're saying. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I'm generally not a fan of these sort of arguments. Me neither, but, like, there is some truth to it, which is what makes this compelling reading, even though, like... I don't know, half of my brain is screaming bullshit. Like, there's some truth here, and it's portrayed in a frustrating way Uh that as leftists in the year 2000 or whatever, (laughs) or in the year of our Lord, we're supposed to be able to just suspend that stuff and be like, yeah, the story is totally warped in ways that you might consider dishonest. But, I mean, it's got a real theoretical bite. We're supposed to be able to put that aside And I can't believe that I've waited this long to read this because I thought that I had read this and I've read a bunch of her revolution at point zero, like compilation, you know, I'd read wages for housework pretty early on and I was pretty sure I had read this. I might've dipped into it a little bit, but clearly I hadn't like given it the amount of attention that I did recently because when I read Foucault, it was still something new to me. It was still something like impressive and 
you know, it sticks in your mind's eye. You know, it's something that if you want to argue against it, you have to kind of like do a lot of research on your own to kind of figure out yeah. what part he's omitting. And maybe that's the best thing that you can get out of this is that this makes me want to go research the witch trials and this sort of thing <laughs> and like figure out what the hell actually happened there. Yeah, I didn't even mention the Salem witch trials. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? How did that, like, not come up? That's the other thing, too. Like, I didn't even mention, like, the witch hunt against our president. Prevent him from doing what needs to be done. Sorry, what were you going to say? The major thing that jumped out to me about this book is how, like, literary-minded it seems. Because, you know that play The Crucible by Arthur Miller? Mm. That kind of, like, rereads the witch hunts? Yeah. The staple of every high school drama department. The witch hunts become a metaphor for anti-communists, you know, witch hunts. Quote yeah. quote. It's almost like Federici wants to invert that symbolism and literally make the witch hunts themselves somehow an anti-communist thing. Mm. No, yeah, anti-communalist, you could say. Yeah, the Salem witch trials, like, I wonder if there's like another part of the book that goes into that. I mean, I would have no way of knowing because how would I have read this entire book? I mean, it's just impossible. Oh, yeah. Arthur Miller is mentioned in here. Oh, man. I'm learning all kinds of stuff. It's a good thing I learned these things before talking about it in public. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Salem Witch Trials are mentioned like four times in the book. I don't think we read those chapters. (laughs) Yeah. A bit forced, but it's not wrong to say that there's some class struggle elements to this. Yeah. But it is pretty functional. But again, I am somebody that will often claim that the process of forced collectivization in the Soviet Union was for capitalism in some way, even though all the agents were doing it for communism. So if I can make functional claims like that against the wills of individual actors, there's a version of this thesis that is not that much of a stretch, even if it's not the one written by Federici. You know, like, if you're for functional explanation, you kind of open the door to a lot of stuff that sounds pretty crank. The only way to judge it, though, is by history, and that's what makes this so frustrating, is that the evidence marshaled feels not as convincing as it could be. I mean, the problem is here, too, is that I don't really have the historical background to really pick apart these claims one way or another. Well, neither do I, but I have Google, you know? Yeah, I mean, we have Reddit, but I mean, hey, uh, this uh, Federici stuff, this is actually crankery. Um, I have a, a Reddit post here. <laughs> it actually um, tells what the truth is. Hey, listen, this Reddit post, it's not bad. It's on uh, Ask Historians. Mm-hmm. Ask Historians has, you know, like, PhD-level people, and, like, it's really well-moderated. It's mm-hmm. probably a better bet than some fucking Marxist crank. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of reading Settlers, where there's kind of a broader point here that's kind of like a takeaway, but as you get into... The specifics of the historiography and the actual like thesis that this narrative is trying to bolster, that's where things get a little bit sketchy. In defense of Jay Sakai, he has the excuse of at least not being a trained historian or anything like that, whereas this person has an academic background, an actual academic Right. Yeah, but she's not a trained historian. You know, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> Foucault isn't an historian. These people are, are writing like philosophy as history. It might be less sensational, but it would have been more honest to just write some theory. Right, but 
still you're taught like the basic yeah i see what you're saying like the basics of that kind of like research and publishing something like in an academic environment where it's subject to like peer review and shit like that as opposed to like jason i wasn't even like working in like a factory or some shit yeah literally yeah and he just kind of like banged that out to spare time if you look at settlers it looks like it was like xeroxed <laughs> by some guy in like the 1970s so Whereas this book seems really like nicely arranged, has all these like medieval like prints on it. I don't know if it was done with institutional support. I'm not really sure, but um, it seems like pretty well put together. And yeah, I guess that whole academic tradition going back to Foucault doesn't have the same excuse that Jay Sakai has that he was too busy busting ass on the job. Yeah, I guess Foucault was busy, you know, balls deep in his students or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Steve and that boy pussy. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, is the episode over? Uh, do you guys have any more thoughts on it? Or uh, Probably, but I don't remember them. So I've been taking a little bit of medicine of my own. That, that's all natural. That's not brought to you by <laughs> pharma. Yeah. Taking control of my body. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I mean... This, but ironically, <laughs> I don't know. There's resonance to me here because I've been looking into this thing called open source gender codes, which is this like nice idea that would allow people to like grow their own hormones so they wouldn't be reliant on the medical state industrial complex man. But, um, you know, until that works, uh, government will pay for a lot of people to transition. <laughs> right now i was gonna make the connection between like you know possibly making a defense of like witches as sort of a medical practice in like the late renaissance or whatever and the sort of demonization of anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists in the 21st century Hmm. so the medical industry is something that's like fundamentally scary to people and it's scary for good reason. In the United States in particular, healthcare is something that is not generally given to people. Doctors kind of treat people in a cold and dispassionate manner. And they're generally not there for people's best interests, ultimately, in the end. That's why we don't have as many general practitioners. That's why it's so expensive. Overall, it's a major racket, and some degree of paranoia is ultimately justifiable against, like, the medical industry. However, this sort of paranoia grows and grows, and it becomes viable in, like, anti-vaxxers and that sort of thing. And, well, yes, obviously, anti-vaxxers are dangerous. A great extent of the failures of American healthcare is put on the backs of anti-vaxxers because like if there's like another plague or whatever that comes around it's not going to be the fault of like a few suburban housewives who are like ah yeah let me give jimmy enema bleaches instead of going to the doctor to get a vaccine it's going to be a fault of like the military industrial complex looking into new bioweapons to use against brown people and a medical industry that's not willing to take care of poor people or the general mass public in the United States. Or develop like antibiotics to keep up with like the changing antibiotic strains because there's no money in it. Mm. Right. Mm. Right. That feel when the forces is fettered by the relations. Yeah. But 
they're probably going to get blamed in the same way now. Same with conspiracy theorists, ultimately. Conspiracy theorists have a general paranoia about the government, but their paranoia is somewhat justifiable to a certain extent. Because that's relatable. People can understand that. Oh, look at these fucking morons. You know, they infect their kids. I went to Disney World and these kids are are the measles. This is fucked up. (laughs) You know, maybe that's an aspect. Like, Imagine going to a bunch of medieval peasants being like, you see, what happens is they want to basically expropriate your land so that you have to work for wages. And then they can create like a surplus population so that they, you know, like they, they wouldn't know what the fuck you're talking about. But you'd be like, right. that bitch is a witch and she has been running her mouth in this village for way too long and she is ruining everything. She's like, killing children. She yeah. made it so that I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't come anymore. You yeah. know, my fields, they won't fucking grow potatoes yeah. anymore. Like yeah. it's all this bitch's fault. Yeah. Fucking Susie. Sitting down at the town square, running her yap, day in and day out. Man can't catch a break. She's a witch. Let's let's kill her. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just sort of imagining a fucking like anti witch lynch mob that's kinda like no ma'am from Married with Children. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. I mean no, that's what it was. Yeah, because it's relatable. Like with the Vax thing, like that's why, you know, Marxists advocate for class struggle, because in struggle, these like hidden like relationships that exist that are constituents of the system come out into the open and are exposed to people and what they're doing. Whereas, you know, right now it's just the water that they swim in so they don't see it. So you it's easier to tell mm-hmm. them stories that are highly personalized that they can go, oh yeah, you know, like these retail stores are closing down. That's because bitches be stealing, you know? <laughs> like, no, I've literally heard people say stuff like that. So it's like, because that's relatable. That's what you might call folk methodological individualism. <laughs> yeah. Like, why is there a rise in quote-unquote populism, and why is there, like, a lack of voters coming out in Western democracies? Well, it must be because, you know, obviously these conspiracy theorists came and ruined everything with their conspiracy theories and their irrationality. (laughs) And, you know, the next plague is obviously because freaking wine mom didn't fucking fax her kids, you know? It's just that. It's all these parasitic agents that believe in individualistic conspiracy explanations instead of broader structural claims. It's those goddamn conspiracists. It's those individuals. They're the corrupt ones. It's not the system. That's it for this week. Episodes like this one are made possible by Bonapartists like you. Not One Step Back custom episodes are available on Patreon for $10 a month for six months, or on PayPal for $60. For subscriptions, go to paypal.com slash swampsidechats. And for all-in-one payments, go to paypal.me slash swampsidechats. If you'd like to further enable our bong-rip shenanigans, like our pages on social media, or leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. Visit our homepage at swampside.chat for more. Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Podcast Network and Research Collective. Check out our comrade podcasts at emancipation.network, where you'll find me regularly on the From Alpha to Omega reading series. Coming up, we've got episodes on Frederick Jameson, 
transhumanism and a very special milestone episode. All coming soon. Keep your boots clean, comrades. <laughs>